Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 228 with Gary Morton. I think you'll dig this conversation because Gary breaks down what it takes to have excellence in a team into three essential ingredients that just make a whole lot of sense when he lays them out. So you're going to learn one, the first steps toward achieving clarity of purpose, two, how to spark an empowered obsession in your team, and three, guidelines for unleashing your team's creativity. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, you'll find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep228. And while you're there, I hope you check out some of our cool stuff. One thing I'll point you to today is just the magnifying glass. We have done about 228 episodes here and each of them is transcribed. So if you have any particular work issue or skill you're looking to learn, you can just search that with the magnifying glass, which is right there in the navigation bar at awesomeatyourjob.com. If you don't find what you want there, I also recommend you check out our sponsor, LinkedIn Learning with lynda.com courses have many, many excellent choices to choose from. You can visit that at linkedin.com slash awesome. Now here is Gary's story. Gary Morton graduated from West Point with honors and had a five-year career as a tank officer, the highlight of which was being part of an extraordinary unit that achieved unprecedented results at the U.S. Army's grueling National Training Center. It was the only unit to ever win every simulated battle it fought. Morton completed his master's degree, also with honors from the University of Southern California, transitioned out of the Army to medical device manufacturer Stryker, where he had positions of increasing responsibility in project management, engineering, R&D, operations, and marketing leadership, ultimately becoming the youngest vice president in the company's history. This culminated in 12 years as vice president and general manager of the EMS equipment business that he co-founded today. He's retired and lives with his wife in the Midwest, where he writes and invests. Here's Gary. Gary, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Pete. Well, I really enjoyed digging into your background a little bit. And one thing that seems pretty unique and exceptional for you is, let me make sure I get this claim right, but you were the only tank unit to win 100% of your simulated battles at the Army National Training Center. Is that correct? And if so, what was the secret? Yeah, that is correct. Me, I was a part of the tank unit that was the only unit to win every battle. And, you know, what was the secret? The book is about that. There's a lot that went into that success there. But let me give you a little bit of background on the National Training Center. It is arguably the most realistic training experience that's ever been created in the history of warfare. I mean, it really is a phenomenal thing that we have there at Fort Irwin, actually out here in California. But it's also designed to present scenarios to the units there that are going through these simulated combats that are likely and designed to be more challenging than anything you would probably experience in actual combat. So in other words, it's designed for you to lose. All right. And you will learn through your defeats. And maybe they'll ease up on you a little bit and you'll win one or two battles to have a positive feeling at the end of it. But it's just people don't win there. And for a unit to go out there and win every single simulated battle was just a phenomenal 
experience and just a phenomenal accomplishment as well for that unit. And the Army studied it, wanted to understand what did they do? How could this be possible? And there was that secret sauce that that unit had, which I talk about in my book, Commanding Excellence, but there was an absolute clarity of purpose. There was an empowered obsession throughout every soldier in that unit to achieve the purpose and the creativity that was unleashed throughout all levels of that unit was just phenomenal and created some things that are that are still with Army doctrine today. Well, that's cool. Well, so help me get a little bit of frame of reference then. So just how many battles are there and what's a battle sort of look, sound, feel like in practice? I just kind of want to imagine the scene a little bit more clearly. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, I can describe what I experienced, which was during the Cold War. So you'd go out and you'd fight a simulated Soviet opponent, and they were called the opposing forces. And they were steeped in the uh, Soviet doctrine and whatnot. But they also had the advantages that arguably some of the Soviet forces had. They outnumbered you. They were very well trained. They knew the terrain. They'd fought on that terrain time and time again. They'd had hand-picked troops. And you would put a system on yourselves and on your vehicles and throughout your unit called the Multiple Integrated Laser Engagement System, or MILES. And this was the biggest game of laser tag, if you can imagine, that you've ever seen and most realistic. And even then, computers tracked every vehicle a good number of soldiers to figure out, and and you could replay the battle on a big screen back at the headquarters after it was done. And you'd usually fight nine battles. Now, sometimes it would be eight, sometimes 10, but generally you could look at fighting nine battles. And a good unit would win two of the nine. And that'd be a pretty good accomplishment. To win nine and oh was just unbelievable. That is wild, yes. And I think my math is running here. Even if your odds were as good as a coin toss, that's like one in 500-something-ish. That could happen just by chance. So it sounds like you're saying you didn't get lucky. There was something at work there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There was something that worked there. It was a very special unit. Okay, cool. Well, well, so I'm intrigued that I liked how in your book, you lay out a couple different scenarios or contexts for leadership and then point to the same three principles, getting the job done. So could you maybe orient us first of all, what is the book all about and why is it important here now? I guess what makes it distinctive from any of the numerous leadership books out there? Yeah, I mean, the book is written by a practitioner, somebody that was a part of doing a part of two extraordinary organizations. And it really is a collection of stories. And through the stories, it's intended to teach some ideas and reveal the secret sauce that allowed these two organizations to be and achieve things in the top 1% of the top 1% of the top 1% of their fields. One of those things which we talked about just a second ago was both of these organizations, the second organization being Stryker, a medical device company. And what was unique and phenomenal about Stryker is for 28 years, under their CEO, until they retired, this company grew its earnings 20% every year and every quarter of every year for all 28 years. Wow. And it was a company highlighted by Jim Collins in his book, Great by Choice, as a 10x company for one of those decades. But it was really a 10x company for every decade that this gentleman led the company. And the feeling that I had and insiders inside either of these two organizations, obviously two very different organizations, one oriented at war and killing, the other oriented at medical devices and saving. (laughs) But the feeling inside was the same. We had this sense of inevitable excellence. The book is sharing 
what it felt like to be inside that in a fashion that will hopefully allow other leaders and other people to create organizations with that type of excellent results. Okay, well, I'm good and intrigued, so let's jump right in. So let's talk about these principles that create the secret sauce. So can you give us the overview picture here? Yeah, the overview picture. And these are about, these organizations achieve things that were considered impossible. So these principles are about the extremes. You know, absolute clarity of purpose. It is an extreme. It's not a mission statement. It is something that pervades everything and anything happening within that organization. And it's crystal clear at all levels. Absolute clarity. It defines what's important, what's not important, that we're not going to do. You know, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook after him have always said, you know, at Apple, we're great at figuring out what we're not going to do. We turned down a whole bunch of ideas. And having this clarity of purpose made it crystal clear. It also was clear what we're going to be great at. And at the armor unit, it was, we're going 9-0 and at the National Training Center. And there was a lot of commanders that said, we're going to try to win at NTC and we're going to do all this. The difference was Debella, who was the battalion commander, he aligned everything in that organization to achieve it. Just like Stryker aligned everything in its organization to achieve 20% earnings growth. And that's an extreme. Second, both these leaders had a personal and monomaniacal obsession to achieve that purpose. And they both were able to inspire and empower that same obsession throughout the organization. And that is, again, it was extreme. These were not normal teams. They were obsessed people. And that is how they achieved what they achieved. And then lastly, to collect, you had these clear purpose people obsessed with achieving it, and then an environment and an atmosphere that allowed and facilitated the unleashing of creativity at every single level and in every single activity. And all of that collected together generated these truly exceptional results. Okay, that's cool. That's exciting. And so I want some more of that. It sounds good. So could you help us get a little bit clearer on the clarity of purpose? First of all, I want to step into each of these three in terms of, okay, you said the absolute clarity of purpose. It's not a mission statement. It is more clear. It shares what's important and not important. Could you give us some examples of where we see that happening versus not happening? Yeah, I'll give you an example that a lot of people would know. You know, Tim Cook, who's the CEO at Apple, I think has done probably the best job following a legend that anyone in history has ever done. And he's come out with a whole bunch of different statements about what Apple does. We create these great products. We change the world. A whole, you know, There's five or six different statements that he repeats a lot. And they're fabulous. And they really help define what's going on in the organization. But the absolute clarity of purpose was something that Steve Jobs did such an incredible job of explaining. Insanely great products. All right. And everything else flowed from that. All the things that Tim talks about in his definition of the mission, it all flows from insanely great products. And it's something simple. People can get their mind around it. They can get their hands around it. They can say it in two or three words to folks that they know. That is that clarity of purpose. Under Jack Welch at GE, number one or number two in every business. And that defined it. We're going to be number one or number two, or we don't do it. 
and everything in that organization aligned around making that happen. Okay, that's good. Now, can you give us some examples of maybe where people think they have clarity of purpose, but it's actually falling short? You know, those examples are all over the place. The church I go to, they talk about their mission in the beginning of every service. And, you know, it's blah, 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 blah. It's apple pie and baseball and all these things that every other organization wants to do. The clarity of purpose sets you apart. It's simple. It's only a few words. It defines what makes you different. Most organizational mission statements, I don't mean to demean the mission statements, but if you want super extraordinary performance, have that simple definition of what your purpose is. Okay, so let's get some more, because I think that there is a distinction where I think people maybe are let off the hook too easily in the sense of, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we know our purpose. Yeah, well, you know, we're, we're to create shareholder value by innovating, you know, whatever. Or it's like folks, they have a sense of the purpose or the mission or the vision, but it's not really, you know, it's not the stuff that you're talking about. So I'd love it if you could just elaborate a little bit more in terms of how do you know when you've got it or you don't? You know when you've got it, when every candidate that comes in to interview, every vendor or supplier that spends five minutes in your building, know that that purpose is why your organization exists. And you couldn't spend five minutes inside of Stryker under John Brown and not know that this organization was about 20% growth. You heard it from the receptionist. You heard it in every interview if you're a candidate. You heard it in every interview that you went to. If you're a supplier, you hear it from every buyer that you're working with because it's so pervasive. That's why it's so powerful. It's so pervasive. Everybody knows it. It defines who they are. There's a sense of pride around it. There's a sense of you build it at Stryker. It had a chance to be built over years and years and years of accomplishment. And it would cause people to do extraordinary things if ever it came up that maybe we might not make it this quarter or we might not make it this year. And the whole organization would rally around it. So if you're inside an organization that has it, you feel it, you know it, it's discussed by everyone and it's crystal clear. It's 20% growth. You know, GE just had their conference call and their earnings release, and they've got a new CEO, and he seems like a very competent guy, and he's a good leader and whatnot. He's describing what they're going to do. And it's exactly what you were saying, Pete. It's what everyone else says. (laughs) It's not clear. It's not defining for the organization, what are we going to do? When Steve Jobs went back to Apple, insanely great products. That's what we do. Elon Musk, when he talks about SpaceX, what are they going to do? They're going to put people on Mars. And everybody in that organization knows it. That's why they exist. Okay. Okay. I dig it. I dig it. So you feel it and it's clear. And I'm intrigued here when you talk about insanely great products. It's interesting. So if I look at those two, you know, clarity of purpose statements or, or visions side by side, when I hear insanely great products, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Let's go make some of those. That excites me. Whereas when I hear 20% growth year after year, From my perspective, I mean, hey, high growth is cool and more fun than low growth for sure, but it doesn't kind of grab me on the outside, but you are making it sound like it sure stirred the people inside Stryker. Yeah. And that's something that both of the objectives of these organizations, you know, the nine and oh, win every battle. Well, if you're a soldier, you can really tie into that. The 20% growth, you know, I agree. It's not particularly inspirational. It doesn't kind of gain some strength by this 
altruistic sense of what we're trying to do or what, I mean, 20% growth, what is that? But what happened over time is as it became one year, two years, three years, and the systems and processes and incentives and everything within the organization were put in place to do it, it facilitated all of those more noble things to happen. Now, I started a business there that changed the world for our customers. There are paramedics and EMTs around the world that are working today as a result of the products that we developed for them that allowed their lives to be a whole lot easier. And that was the most fulfilling part of my role, I guess, in leading that business. And when we changed the world, we allowed people to keep working that would have had no chance of working had we not been in the market. So I look upon that as maybe our team's greatest accomplishment. Yet at the same time, it was all in this environment, in this backdrop of 20% earnings growth. And the 20% allowed people like me and people like my compatriots and fellow division leaders to go after those more noble goals because it defined you had so much autonomy to achieve what you wanted to achieve. So for John Brown, the 20% defined who he was and what he was trying to accomplish, but he allowed everyone else to accomplish what they wanted to do as long as you do 20% as well. And we did many, you know, Stryker's products and the things that we invented over those years really have profoundly affected patients and doctors and healthcare all around the world. All right. So understood. Clarity of purpose. So I'm wondering if you don't have clarity, how do you get there? Well, you start by defining it. I mean, it's simple. And the thing about what both these organizations did as well is it really was pretty simple. Okay, if we don't have clarity, you got to recognize it. It's just like the 12-step process. I'm a whatever. I'm an unclear mission haver. (laughs) I'm an unclear mission person. and That's who I am right now. And I'm going to change. And you have to identify that and be brutally honest about it. And then define for your organization, if you're in the leadership position, if you're not in the leadership position and you'd like to have that clarity of purpose, define it for yourself. Define it for, okay, I'm a part of this uh, tool and die maker, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to make the absolutely the best or the most productive tool I can in every situation that I get into. I'm going to improve the quality of the tool for my customer every chance I get. Define your own purpose. Right. But if that company, if you're in that leadership position and you have the chance to define that purpose for them, come up with something that inspires you because that leader has to be obsessed with achieving it has to be obsessed with it. Because to me, what these two guys did and what seems like anybody else that's going to try to spread that obsession throughout an organization, boy, they got to have it themselves. Certainly. And this reminds me even like my first job. I worked at Kmart. They called me Pantry Pete as I set up the food matters. And so I remember I was an unusual teenager in a number of respects, but I remember in the training videos, they talked about how we had the power to please as a Kmart employee. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. Whether you could run a substitute for two 12 packs of soda slash pop for the 24 pack sale price, I just thought that was kind of cool that I had that autonomy. And so I actually wrote down in my calendar when it was time to work, not just work or Kmart, but I actually wrote exercise power to please. And for me, I really did. I got into like the opportunity to just delight the bejesus out of a customer and just sort of like walk them directly to where the things were. And I guess it was just sort of like my game and well, it was more fun, I guess, than rearranging the candy aisle to make it look tidier. It was the people element, but I did. I sort of defined my own purpose 
And so it worked for me in terms of making work just feel more fun and interesting and rewarding. Oh, yeah. That's an excellent example. And, you know, it reminds me of a story from, um, I went to a leadership course one time in uh, Nebraska of all places, but there were folks from Disney there. And there was a guy that ran downtown Disney. And he described how they tried to get people that were initially coming into the Disney organization to be a part of, they didn't call them employees, they called them cast members. Right. And, And Disney does such an excellent job with that. Whether, if you're the housekeeper, making rooms up. You are part of the cast. And he would describe how that you can make the difference for that little child that's visiting Disney World for the first time. They see you in the hallway and they say hi. And you can just say hi. Or you could say, hey, what are you going to see today? So oh, we're going to the Magic Kingdom. Oh, the Magic Kingdom. You're going to see the princesses. Oh, yeah. You tell Belle that I told her that you should get this or something. They make it part of the event for them. And yeah, that's taking Disney's purpose at Walt Disney World, at least in that point, and empowering that to all different levels of the organization. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that second principle then. Empowered obsession. I mean, how does that take root and other folks get in on that obsession? Yeah, I think there are a number of ways that that can happen. For both these organizations, it spawned from the top leader who was absolutely obsessed with achieving that purpose. And then they built a following around them through different aspects of their personalities. These were two very different leaders. One, he built the following around him because he was the military guy, was an outstanding combat leader. And he read military history. And one of the things that he did was he was convinced that if I demonstrate courage, and show people that I care about the soldiers above all else, then they'll follow me. And he took advantage from day one of his first day in command to demonstrate that personal courage. At the time, every tank commander and a battalion commander, so this lieutenant colonel that would come in, would be assigned a tank. But most battalion commanders wouldn't use their tank. They were just assigned one, and most wouldn't wouldn't fight in it, because it was very difficult to control an operation if you're trying to fight a tank at the same time. But you would supposedly need to go through a gunnery exercise. And the previous battalion commander had never gone through this exercise, but it just happened to be that this guy was, you know, that Fred was coming into command the day of the annual gunnery exercise. So he decided instead of bowing out of it, he knew one of the company commanders say, hey, put a crew together for me and I'm going to go down the gunnery range because that will show people that I'm different than the other guy. That I am here, I've got the courage to go through the same things that you're going through, and I'll do it from day one. Well, you know what? This guy was extremely talented, and it turns out that he uh, qualified the highest in the battalion (laughs) with a very good crew. But it started to demonstrate from day one that, hey, this guy has got courage. And then he demonstrated it through exercise after exercise and instance after instance how you could trust him. And through that courage and trust, he built this ability to empower people because you knew he had your back. If you had a crazy idea and you went out and tried it and it didn't work, you weren't going to get killed. You weren't going to get flayed in your review or whatever. You had a crazy idea and you went out and tried it. You know what? It didn't work. So try another one. That kind of environment that was built within Striker, there were so many within a business organization, you have so many ways to empower and allegiance to the purpose, whether it's the incentive programs, whether it's the annual cadence, everything at Stryker was racked and stacked, and it was out there. It was brutally honest. 
And it wasn't an organization for people that didn't want to be a part of it, that didn't want to be a part of the everyday activities. You couldn't hide anywhere at Stryker. You know, I used to tell people that we're interviewing is if you want to join a large, really large organization that has a lot of great engineers, you know, I was mostly interviewing engineers in my early career, then you can join one of the big three auto companies. I and mean, they're great. And you'll have a great career there and have a good time. And the, and the first day on the job, they'll give you a tool. And it'll be a jeweler screwdriver. And you can tweak the steering column here or change the brake pads over there. And a couple of years from now, you'll see the results of your work in a car. And you'll feel good about that. Well, at Stryker, it's different. Because at Stryker, the first day in your job, we're going to give you a tool and it's a sledgehammer. And you're part of a small, independent team that has broad responsibilities for the complete design of a new product. And you'll be stretched in ways you never dreamed possible. And that empowered folks in ways that I can't describe, but they'd empowered folks because they knew they were going to have the autonomy. They knew they were going to have the independence. The incentive systems were all oriented around, you deliver the growth and we leave you alone and you go do what needs to be done. Now, everything at both organizations were highly ethical, but at the same time, they were highly empowered and let people go and make things happen. And that created magic. All right, cool. You made me rethink that phrase itself, empowered obsession. It's like folks are empowered to the extent to which they deliver on the obsession. And then it's like, well, hey, anything and everything else within an ethical boundary is fair game. So go ahead, do it. We'll be out of your way. Enjoy it. Try it out. See how that goes. Yes. Very good. It's that high autonomy, high accountability, high responsibility environment that just was proliferated throughout both organizations. Now, I'm curious if someone's listening and they are either just newly placed in a supervisory or management role and they want to, to liberate some extra empowered obsession what should be some of the first steps? Well, demonstrate to your team that you're committed. Demonstrate to your team that you'll support them. Find ways to understand the strengths and weaknesses of your people and get people doing what they do best every day. And can you give us an example of just something that makes it really come alive? Like, ooh, I can really see, manager, that you are committed to me. I can really see that you support me. Here's a good example. I won't use any names here, but so... We have a team of folks that are developing EMS products and hired a new guy that came into the team. And it's a very design-focused organization. And the designers, because we've made products that have changed our customers' lives, the designers are highly applauded on that team. So we bring in a new guy, and he's not really a design guy, but we liked him and thought that he could do some interesting things for us. And then he struggles in the design piece. The key with him was to realize that, you know, he's not a design guy, but the design guys don't want to do a lot of these things that this person is great at. You know what? He can make sure that we're following all the procedures and requirements that the FDA requires of us through the course of a project. He can make sure that we're following a methodical process to ensure that all of our tests and validation and verification for this product is sound and it's going to deliver something that's a ultra high quality from day one. And he can help us ensure that we do all that. So we, you put him into a position where he can soar with his individual strengths, where he can be what who he is best at being as a part of the overall organization. So I think if you are the new employee Find and understand what you do best and figure out how you can work yourself into a position where you get a chance to do that every day. It is a force multiplier. And if you're a supervisor, 
figure out the strengths and weaknesses of your people and put them into the places where they're going to they're going to soar. And we did the same thing in the tank battalion. But the tank battalion commander didn't have the chance nor the time to change out a whole bunch of leadership and supervisors as an organization. He had to play with the cards that he was dealt. So what he did was figure out what are my strengths and weaknesses of these different commanders and these different non-commissioned officers and how can we develop our battle plans around them and around those strengths and weaknesses. And the results were, again, magical. Do tell about the magical result. So, for example, we came up with a concept called a playbook for this tank unit. And the playbook was a methodology to simplify the process of getting an order from higher headquarters and translating that into a concept of the operation for the next day's engagement. And we worked this and drilled this. It was a concept that the commander had brought in from a football experience. Basically, football, I don't know if you know football very well, but one of the simple ways to run an offense in football is called the wishbone. Some college teams will do this because it's simple. It's it's all about executing and excellence in executing of six simple plays. Well, so we came up with a playbook concept for our maneuver operations. And then we designed the role for each company of the four maneuver companies in that unit around the strengths of its leader and non-commissioned officers, and then all the way down into its squads and tank crews. For example, I was in Alpha Company, and what we were great at was long-range tank gunnery. But something moved in front of our guns, we could hit it. So we designed the plays of the task force to get Alpha in the position to shoot the enemy. And everything revolved around that. Now, we had another company that was extremely strong at land navigation. They were dicey. and They could figure out small undulations in the terrain and maneuver into an objective. So they became the lead unit. And they would lead the task force out of every assembly area and into the attack. And those kinds of things are, again, created that magical result of nine wins at the National Training Center. Okay, thank you. And now the third principle here, unleashing creativity. How does one go about doing that? Well, yeah, I think there are a number of ways. What these two organizations were exceptional and what made it so extreme inside them was People were empowered, and there was an open and honest environment of communication in both organizations, and it was brutally honest. And by brutally honest, you know, a lot of times when people go and they try to brainstorm today, there's an important balance that needs to happen between allowing the free flow of ideas, which you want to have, and then at some point in the brainstorming operation or the brainstorming scenario, you've got to cull through the ideas and decide, okay, what are we going to go after and what are we going to not go after? But what is most effective there in that situation is the best idea wins. So it's not politically based. It's not who had the idea. Did the commander have it or did the sergeant have it or did the soldier in the mess hall have it? doesn't matter. It matters is how powerful is the idea and the best idea wins. You know, that's one key part of the environment. Second is you're constantly and forever learning. And you're learning from other people's experience at Stryker. You're learning from your competitor's experience, from your other division's experience, from each other's experience, from your own team's experience. And you're constantly figuring out, again, the learning is directed because it's all, well, what worked and generated earnings growth? What worked and made this unit or this division more 
able to deliver its numbers. And you look at those evaluation criteria that's constant. It allows you to learn around because the innovation in both these organizations was very purposeful. Then there was this environment of constant and continuous improvement. And if you get a little bit better at things every day, then you can look back two years, you know, six months, a year, two years, five years later. And that thing that you got a little bit better at every day has been transformed into a powerful part of your organization and powerful part of your organization's approach to whatever it might be doing. And all of that happens because it's an empowered environment. People are free to speak their mind. They're backed up by the leaders throughout the organization. You get the time to experiment. Now, it's not that you're just given things because a lot of studies would show that these, for example, if you're going to do an offsite team to go develop something, a new product or a new business approach or whatever, if you give them every resource in the world, they usually fail. You got to get that entrepreneurial spirit going. So you give them limited resources and then they figure out how to use the limited resources they have to do amazing things. Okay. Well, so now thinking about sort of the opposite of this, I'm imagining organizations that don't have that creativity unleashed. There are some leashing factors. What do you see are some of those top factors and how can we unleash them? Yeah, there's always the not invented here syndrome. There is the we can't do it that way syndrome or they'll never let me syndrome. And they exist in every organization to some level. I think one of the keys to unwinding those philosophies is the first two elements of the secret sauce is you have that absolute clarity of purpose and you empower an obsession to achieve it. I remember when I walked into the manufacturing plant, um, you know, here I am, I leave the army, I go into a manufacturing organization, and I end up as a project manager. I also have some responsibility for manufacturing engineering. And this plant is, I just can't believe it. I mean, it's like World War II and it's 1989. It's just, they haven't kept up with the technology that was available. And I talked to the folks on the plant floor, and this is Stryker. The organization's been growing 20% for about 12 years. Well, manufacturing hadn't quite got the message yet. (laughs) And so they believed that, well, we can't get a new lathe. We tried to get one last year, and we couldn't get it passed, and the corporate said no. So, well, let's go see what you did. And the request for the lathe was all about how it'll make this part better or that part better and whatnot. I said, it's 20% earnings growth. It's clear. So show how the lathe is going to get us 20% more earnings. That's all we have to do. And lo and behold, over the next three years, we totally transformed the inside of that manufacturing plant by just getting approval on all kinds of new machinery and processes and whatnot because we'd done the research and understood how it was going to deliver cost reductions, and quality improvements that would lead to earnings growth. Perfect. Well, thank you, Gary. Tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? You know, it's been a great conversation, Pete. I could talk for days, but I think we've covered a lot and there's a lot more in the book and I appreciate the questions you've given me. Okay, cool. Well then, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I'll go with the military example. You know, there's a quote from George Patton. And that was one of the books I read when I was a kid. And I thought, well, this guy seemed to be an effective leader. So there's some things to learn from him. But one of those was never tell people how to do things. Tell them what you want and let them surprise you with their ingenuity. And that really was a philosophy 
that was pervasive throughout those two organizations. So another one from Patton was a good solution applied with vigor now is better than a perfect solution 10 minutes later. And that was really the genesis of the playbook that we used at 468. It was a good solution for fighting the battle, and it was quickly disseminated to all the units that were going to do it. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Lots of favorite books. Again, I go back to my early days. You know, that War As You Knew It from George Patton was one that I often remembered as I went through my military and business career. Okay. And now could you share with us a favorite tool? You know, I was one of the first people in the country to buy an iPhone. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was just transformational. I still remember the experience of the second generation, so the 3G, when it came out and the App Store opened. And I got on the App Store and I downloaded some apps. I just, oh my God, they figured this whole thing out. This will absolutely change the world. It was just a phenomenal experience. At the very early days, these guys really got this thing right. (laughs) And how about a favorite habit? One of my habits is to keep myself physically and mentally fit. So I work out pretty much every day, except for one day a week. And it really has been in the toughest times at Stryker, in the toughest times of my life. It really has helped a lot to have the energy and the determination to get through things. All right. And is there a particular nugget that you share or you've written that seems to really connect and resonate, whether it's folks retweeting or taking notes or Kindle book highlighting a lot? You know, in both organizations and in the things that I've written, there is this understanding that people gain that I can state in a short phrase, because really what I'm describing and what created excellence here were simple things. And a lot of organizations don't do those simple things. They make it too complex from the beginning. But some organizations, they do. They start off with the right things in place. And then they get bigger, they grow, and it becomes different. Because it is simple, but it's not simple to keep it so simple. I mean, you really have to be careful not to create a whole lot of bureaucracy because bureaucracies aren't created by bad people. They're created by good people who just went through a crisis and they don't want that crisis to come again. So they put controls and checks and balances and those types of things in place. And it all makes sense when you're in the crisis and when you're just coming out of it. But 15 years later, you look back on it, my gosh, we've got such a morass of controls and oversight and whatnot that we can't get anything done. And you just have to constantly call through that and make sure that you're keeping things simple. All right. And Gary, if folks want to get in touch or learn more, where would you point them? Well, the book's available at Barnes & Noble and Amazon and other online and stores around the country and in the English-speaking world. There's a website I have called iGaryMorton, like iPod, iGaryMorton.com. And there's information there. And then I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. Okay, excellent. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Understand and be honest with yourself about what you do best at your work and find ways to do more of that each and every day. All right. Well, Gary, thank you so much for working us through these three principles. Super helpful. I wish you lots of luck with your book and your next leadership adventures. Thank you, Pete. Been great. I really appreciate Gary's examples of insanely great products. Like it's simple, 
and you feel it, you know it, it's crystal clear, and there's not ambiguity there, and how that has a real galvanizing effect for saying, okay, are we hitting this? Are we doing this? Is this in line with that? Oh, no, it's not. Okay. And how that really just liberates a whole lot of energy. I've experienced that myself when it comes to different organizations and team environments where there's fuzziness and not the clarity of purpose. Well, you feel it. And being a little clear is a lot different than being supremely clear, which I think of kind of whatever I put on my glasses and look at text. Oh, this text is kind of clear, but then if on the glasses, oh, it's really clear. And what a difference that makes. So again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items that we've referenced here, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F228. That free trial of LinkedIn learning is at linkedin.com slash awesome. And I hope you'll push subscribe so you can catch our next guest. It is Francis Cole Jones. Francis is talking about how to wow, to leave just tremendously positive impressions. So I hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.